With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back over to the UK because there's nothing major going on over there lately, if you even tangentially look at the headlines, but uh, important topic. I'm looking forward to this. New face from our UK contributor, Sophia Warringer, is joining us from the UK. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. I appreciate you. Another one of our great young voices contributor. Uh, also does some other things in her own right. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Well-traveled, too. Always appreciate that. You wrote a piece about the Queen, and I know people are like, well, why are we still talking about the Queen? I want to set it up this way to you, though, because when I talk to people that work in and around Parliament, when I talk to our UK friends while that was all going on, yes, to the American audience, yes, it's mostly ceremonial. Yes, it's, you know, there's not really political power there. But when I talk to the people that actually work around the the constant of the queen, the steadiness, the fact that she is the titular head of state, that was a real thing to parliament. It was a stabilizing force in some ways. She dies. We have total chaos. It's not all just because of that, because it's economics and other things. Is there a little element here like this may not be as chaotic and as vitriolic as it was if the queen was still there? Because everybody I talked to said that stabilization thing was a very real thing. I think you're right in some ways. I think the Queen's constant presence over most of the last century now um, and 70 years on the throne was definitely a stabilising presence in Parliament. Obviously, she would open it every new parliamentary session. Uh, she only missed two or three, I think, when she was very ill or heavily pregnant. And she was therefore a constant presence and I think also a national focus of identity of direction of ceremony and tradition and although her successor um, King Charles embodies much of that his presence on the scene hasn't been quite as constant and so therefore I do feel like we have maybe lost some of that reassurance and, and steady hands and I think um, as a national figurehead she was incredibly unifying and she would not get involved in the nitty gritty of politics. She would not comment on on political day to day activities and her unifying presence will definitely be missed. And maybe there can be links drawn to the economic uh, turmoil we see ourselves now in. But it may have to have more hindsight to exactly express how those things are connected. Yeah, Sophia Warren's joining us. I think it's one of those passive things, though, of when you have somebody that's that revered and that respected and that beloved. I think there was something to it of just, well, you don't want to ever embarrass or or let somebody like that down. It's a passive thing. It's not like something that's talked about. You don't get a memo at the beginning of parliament sessions, like don't embarrass the queen. It's just understood that, hey, you know, when we do stuff, you know, don't embarrass the queen, don't embarrass the country. There's an element of that that we are losing in societies. We're losing it in America, certainly. That kind of institutional 
thing. The British are kind of, you know, y'all got that stereotype, stiff upper lip, carry on. You got the T-shirts, all that stuff. Is there a concern some of that might be a little bit slipping here that we're maybe decorum's kind of becoming an issue a little bit? I do think the UK public showed that extent of their love and devotion to the Queen and the outpouring of grief following her death. And obviously the eyes of the world turned to Westminster as the funeral was broadcast. And I think people were quite surprised maybe about how emotional they became upon hearing the Queen had died. People who had never met her, um, people who had never even seen her. And I think there was something about that collective experience of loss in the country uh, that has probably disorientated a lot of people over the last few weeks and caused people to be anxious about the future, to question what is Britain's place in the world. And I think the combination of changing head of state and changing government, changing prime minister happening all very quickly after a very um, kind of tumultuous few years in politics anyway, has definitely had an impact on the national psyche and has left many people feeling rudderless. So it's very important now that the, the king and the government in whatever form that takes puts emphasis on unity and moving forward and forging a new path for Britain. We can't replicate the Queen. King Charles cannot be his mother, but he can forge his own path. And it's really important that he does that. Yeah, we'll talk about the political turmoil a little bit more in a minute, but y'all need some unity right now. And you're probably going to have some dark days before you get back to it. Let's talk about the Queen for a minute, because you were writing about it. You wrote about American Thinker. We'll link, read the whole piece. She also has a bunch of links inside the piece. You want to make sure you read through those too. When you're somebody like the Queen and you've been on the throne for 70 years and you have movies about you and you have prestige TV series about, you can't help but be a stereotype. We talk about it being marbleization, you know, the famous figures, they got their statue and you never get to the actual person underneath that. But you wrote about this. You wrote about this. That person, the stereotypes didn't always hold up. You know, they talk about her being very traditional, maybe not being, you know, progressively feminist. But she also had a husband who famously, you touch on it in the piece, always walked two paces behind her. Like, you know, some of the stereotypes do match up. Some of them don't. Walk us through a couple of those that you pointed out in your piece. So I think what's really interesting is the Queen was both very traditional and yet also very reforming. So I've talked about the changes she made to the Crown um, succession of the Crown Act in 2013, which undid hundreds, if not thousands of years of male preference primogenitor, where the line of the throne succession passed to the eldest male she undid that so that any child of prince william who is now prince of wales would be equally in line to the throne whether they were born a boy or a girl and that's actually very radical particularly when you think of all of the disputes in history about not producing male heirs and all of the ways our country's history is shaped by this male preference primogenitor in the past and she quietly undid that and i think showed in that her very radical reforming agenda but always in step with honoring tradition and i think therefore some of the accolades around her calling her a feminist are correct in that she did believe in equality and at the heart of feminism that is what is believed but not in the way modern liberal feminists often discuss feminism which blurs the distinction of maleness and femaleness and gender and i think actually the queen as well as being reforming in some ways was very proud of being a female ruler and proud of her femininity and so therefore 
stuck to more conservative um, values of her role and understood her role to be to be very uh, one of protecting institutions and conserving institutions. So in both hands, she was both conservative and reforming. And I think she bridged that gap very well and walked that path very smoothly. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. That's Sophia Warringer joining us from over in the UK. Part of this is a perception issue because, you know, everybody's like, well, she was a very traditional woman. Well, by 1950 standards, she's pretty progressive. By 20, you know, 2022 standards, she's super conservative. How much of it is her own evolution? She reigned for so long that she spanned different eras. But she wasn't the same either, and not just because of age. She changed over time, too. It was more subtle. It was more on the down low. Get us past the media perception, because I think when you look at it that way, it will change how we view her as a person first that, hey, when she came to the throne, unexpectedly, by the way, people forget that part of it. She wasn't expecting to be queen when she was. It kind of got thrust upon her. There was a lot of change, even though it was subtle. And by the standards of her time throughout her lifetime, massive change and massive ways that not only the royalty and the royal family, but the way she presented and represented her country changed as well. Absolutely. She she did in some ways represent this conservatism, this tradition, but as I've mentioned, evolved into her role and saw the monarchy as involving evolving with her, I believe. And I think what is interesting is that the modern liberal feminist movement actually seeks in some ways to be more conservative, more traditional, more um, regressive than it portrays itself to be. So I mentioned in my piece the decisions to portray Joan of Arc and to understand Elizabeth I as a gender neutral, non-binary character. And I think actually those expectations actually put what it means to be a woman into a smaller box than the queen allowed it to be put into. So those interpretations look back at strong female leaders in history and see that they displayed characteristics which were for that time unusual, such as having a female head of state in the case of Elizabeth I and having someone address an army in her case army going to defeat the Spanish Armada, or Joan of Arc, who led wear men's clothes, she led an army, she went to speak to the king, all of those characteristics. Modern liberal feminists are in danger of looking back at people uh, like them and deciding that because they displayed these strong characteristics of leadership 
and courage and decisive strategy, they could not possibly be female, hence the decision to portray them as gender neutral or non-binary. And yet the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, actually was more comfortable in her femininity than that their definitions allow. So she was very comfortable, obviously, in her finery, in the crown jewels, in her, her dresses and fur and feathers, but more maybe comfortable in her country clothes, rolling around in the mud, stalking deer around Balmoral, right? And we need to be very careful that we don't define leadership only through male categories. And she was able to decide that she was a leader and she was strong and she she was female. She didn't want to minimize that, but she was very comfortable with the definition of female extending to full military dress or deer stalking or all these different types of things, which modern liberal feminists are in danger of categorizing only as male. So I think in that sense, she was incredibly progressive. And I think therefore the modern liberal feminist movement is actually and ironically in danger of becoming more aggressive. I know that's not their intention, but with their narrow definitions of gender, they are in danger of that. And that's why it's so interesting. Yeah, Sophia Warren's you're joining us. You have a great antidote in here is something of a little bit of a lighter note because it's a heavy topic. Uh, it was jarring to the American audience and the international audience when you saw Princess Anne in the funeral procession in uniform, which kind of surprised some folks. And then there's, of course, the controversy that, you know, Harry couldn't wear his, but we're not we'll deal with that some other time. But you have a great little antidote about Princess Anne having kind of a, and she was she was basically the caretaker of the Queen. She was the Queen's right hand. She spent more time with her than anybody else. She was with her every day, especially in the last few years with the health stuff. She was basically the caretaker for all practical purposes for folks that don't know. But Princess Anne had that same kind of high-minded, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my job, that kind of day-to-day -day bravery stuff. But you had an interesting little antidote about the time they actually tried to kidnap her and it did not go well for that guy. Yeah, exactly. So the princess, royal princess Anne, uh, is the only daughter of the queen, and she is known for her no-nonsense approach. And there was an attempt to kidnap her from when she was driving in a car, and the person who attempted that got into the car, and she told them to go away, basically, very bluntly, told them that they were a silly man and that they should go away. She took no uh, hostages at all. She was very clear what she wanted. And I think that has... Um, shows something of, of the Queen as well, because their relationship was so close. It was the Queen's wishes that Princess Royal would uh, follow her, the coffin from Balmoral um, to Aberdeen, where it was flown to London. And she did that whole six hour journey in the car behind the coffin. And what is actually really interesting, too, is I saw the hearse and the coffin leave from London, Westminster, to go to Windsor, which is the outskirts of London, and it came near my house and the rest of the royal family were ahead of the coffin in their cars and then the coffin came and then the princess royal princess Anne followed the coffin in a separate car and I do think that shows something of the closeness of the relationship between the princess royal and her late mother and that would have been a request of the queen so the no-nonsense attitude that we see in the princess royal I think she learned um definitely from her late mother and we can understand more about the queen by understanding more about princess Anne. yeah so fair weren't you there was nothing in that funeral that wasn't planned out and approved down to the smallest detail so yeah stuff like that was absolutely not accidental uh let's come back to the present day the queen is gone we had the respite from uk politics we had the great you know 10 days or so of national unity 
boy, howdy, that went away real, real fast. There's an economic crisis. There's a cost of living crisis. There's migrant crises. There's all kinds of crises. Let's just be blunt. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. I know Liz Truss came in with a really hard hand. It looks like it's going even worse than people feared it might. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. This is why I opened up with, you know, even though she's not technically have political power, just having that steady and influence might be really missed right now. What's the state, you know, just common folks on the street? What are obviously you follow politics maybe more closely, but what do people think? Because the average person that doesn't follow policy and economics and politics, I got to imagine they're just looking at that and going, this is one hot mess of not good. I think the public have now a fairly short fuse for political antics. Obviously, the summer was taken up by a very insular leadership race where only MPs and then only members of the Conservative Party could vote. And therefore, most of the public looking on felt excluded from that and didn't have much patience for all of the briefing and uh, counter-briefing that was going on during that race. And they, But they were willing to put up with that because they felt like stability would be delivered at the end and there would be a leader that would take them forward into this new chapter. And I think the Prime Minister now needs to be incredibly clear with the public about her direction. If she wants to completely uh, continue to pursue this direction of tax cutting and growth, which obviously the UK needs. The new UK does need growth after we recover from the pandemic. That is very important. She needs to be clear in her communication. And I think the problem has been is that she has moved too quickly for the public to keep up. And at the end of the day, people are going to look at the money that's in their pockets, right? They're going to look at their mortgage rates, which are going to be fixed for two or three or five years at a very high rate. They're going to look at how much money they have left over at the end of the month once they've paid their energy bills. And so I think economic fiscal responsibility is incredibly important. But even more important than that is the communication of the policies, the communication of the policies of where the country is going and the direction and vision for the country. And I think that's what's been lacking over this tumultuous period is that the country has not been taken on the journey of why these cuts or growth um, have, have, is important. And therefore, there's been a disconnect between the policies and the communications. And therefore, people feel very confused, very in the dark. And those most of the people in the UK, rightly so, are not in the Westminster bubble. They don't read the newspapers every day in incredible detail. They will just look at the headlines. And so it's very important that the government communicates very clearly and very top line as what's going on so that people can go on this journey with them. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us from the UK. Um, if this turns into a longer term economic crisis, let's say past next year, past one or two elections, we're going to get we're going to probably wind up with a general election sooner rather than later somewhere in here. If this turns into a multi-year recession, God forbid, or this this just doesn't seem like it's going to end. Does this go from just being a political crisis to being a transformational moment for the UK? Because it kind of is starting to feel like people are not just questioning leadership they're starting to question the parties they're starting to question the structure the uk's role in the world is evolving the demographics of the uk are changing there's a lot of things moving at once in the uk right now does this feel like something that this may be a crisis that goes beyond just solving the crisis of the moment this might be a generational change type of moment i think so because i think the death of the queen was always going to be a seminal moment in uk identity and understanding of belonging direction and national 
pride. And I think now that that has happened, we are left with this landscape, which is fairly unshaped of who we are on the global stage. What is our role? What does it mean to be British? What are British values? And I think following, obviously, from the Brexit vote, there are still quite severe divides between various people and geographical entities in the UK. And I think, therefore, we are at a crossroads as to who we are and what we stand for. And I think there's been very quick cultural change as well in the UK. If you think in comparison to America, for example, we are a very small population and we've had very big demographic shifts. We've had cultural and value shifts that have been almost over less than a decade, very quickly uh, changed. And I think our sense of unity has not kept up with the sense of change. And so therefore we are definitely at a crossroads and it's important therefore that we tap back into what it is to be British and what holds us together and really focus on that. Yeah, Sophia and Warren, your crisis always reveals. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, our UK friends come out the other side of this crisis looking like. And uh, we do hope our special relationship continues because we sure do enjoy our friendship with y'all. Uh, appreciate the conversation. Love talking about this stuff. Appreciate your insight. Till we get you back on the show in the future, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. I'm working at a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice, looking at routes in and out of poverty in the mid-2020s. So you can follow the work of the Centre for Social Justice online too. Yep, and we'll link to her page, uh, Young Voices, and also her social media. Uh, you're going to have plenty of business on that poverty thing because it looks like it's going to be tough economic times for the foreseeable future, so good luck with that. Thank you so much for the conversation and the time. Sophia Warringer, thank you very much, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, topic we've been touching on off and on because people keep talking about it. People keep doing things about it. The president did something about it. And now we got it thrown into the court system. So this is going to be a mess for a while. Here's who we're going to talk to it about. We're going to talk student loan, student loan debt with Tyler Curtis. He's a Young Voices contributor. He went to Missouri, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because he's good people. Tyler, how are you today, sir? I'm very good. How are you, Andrew? I uh, appreciate it. Did you take out student loans? How'd you get through school? Well, I tried my very best not to. Uh, but then my very last semester, I took out a very small student loan, about $1,000, and paid it off a, a few months after I graduated. But I, I I just made it. I worked my way through school, a couple different jobs, had a, a scholarship here and there. But, but yeah, I did have one little loan. All right. So here's the thing with student loans. Just to intro it, um, I didn't have student loans, but I had my military benefits, both TA while I was active duty and then the GI Bill after I got out. So I did it differently, too. So just biases on the table. That's where we're at on this topic, because the first thing everybody does is, well, did you pay yours back? Did you ever take one? You can still talk about the policy here. You wrote a solutions piece in the Waco Tribune. Here's what I want to do, though, because we've all done this. We write these solution pieces 
we sometimes kind of gloss over what the problem is. The student, the, the student debt issue is multifaceted. So for the purposes of the solution you're going to propose, just break us down what you're seeing as the problem to get to your solution, because we don't put those things together sometimes as commentary, commentary folks to our own detriment. Define the problem for me before we get to your solution as you see it. Okay, so I think the problem is actually twofold. So you have, on the one hand, uh, more and more people are taking out student loans, and the people that have student loan debt, uh, their balances just keep increasing. And the flip side is that tuition keeps rising, uh, and they, they're actually interrelated. So as tuition keeps increasing, people have to take out more and more loans to pay for it. And as people take out more and more loans, as financing becomes more available, uh, tuition rises uh, because uh, the availability of financing means that colleges can increase their tuition without decreasing their revenue. So that they, can keep, they can keep having more and more enrollment uh, even as they increase their prices. Uh, that's kind of the problem there. Um, we're also seeing uh, default rates on student loans increasing. Uh, depending on what source you look at, uh, it can be anywhere between 5% uh, of borrowers that are more than 90 days delinquent, even uh, in some cases, double digits. Uh, there are some communities, I, I just read a study the other day that uh, they found that in Philadelphia, student loan delinquency rates uh, were anywhere between 10 and 15 percent. So uh, we're seeing people that they take out all of this debt and they they just can't pay it back. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us. I, I come at it from this point of view. Part of the problem with the inflation of the system is because it has become predatory. Everybody's funneled into this thing where you have to go to college. You're not going to do anything unless you go to college. You're not going to get a good job unless you go to college. So you have to go to college. And if you can't afford college, too bad, go get a loan. Put yourself in a bad financial system. That's part of the issue, too, is the predatory system of this. How do you put those two things together, though? Because it's inflating, but it's not inflating naturally. It's an artificial inflation of the system. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think it is. And you you talk to a high school student today and they'll tell you that the amount of pressure they have on them to go to college, even if they don't want to or they think it's not the best thing for them, uh, it could be really, could be really tough on them. I remember when I was in school, there were certainly options given. You could go to trade school, community college. But the last thing that you wanted to do is tell a teacher uh, that or an advisor that you were just going to go right into the workplace. Um, it was just verboten you had to go to college of, of some sort, uh, especially a four-year university. They were really pushing for that. Um, and if you can't, I mean, the, and the affordability problem was just, it wasn't really talked too much about. Um, you just sign up, you, you fill out the FAFSA, you get grants that you're eligible for, you get scholarships that you're eligible for, and you take out loans to cover the rest. Um, as far as looking at prices of different universities, I don't know that there was a lot of guidance provided on that at all. Um, and I think if you ask high school students across the country, most of them would say that they're from their uh, school advisors or college advisors. No one's really talking about prices uh, at all. Um, you, you may even go up to a college student and ask them today, hey, how much are you paying for your tuition? They might not even know uh, just because they, they type a form and they, they fill it out online and uh, oh, here's how much the the deficit is from my scholarships. Here's here's how much I owe. Click student loan, sign, done. 
So they're probably not even aware of, of the true cost of what they're paying. Yeah, and that's probably part of the problem. Tyler Curtis joining us. Okay, so you decided to wade into this. I guess you decided you'd made enough friends online. You thought you'd throw a grenade. You came up with uh, an idea here. Are you serious that you think we should put down payments on these student loans? Pitch it to us. What's the idea here? Well, it's it's sort of a compromise. I think uh, if you listen to conservative and libertarian commentators, uh, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, the solution to the student loan debt problem is to just get rid of federal student loans. So the federal government shouldn't be involved in financing uh, college for anybody in any form whatsoever. So if you want to take out loans, you should just go to private lenders that charge really high rates. Um, so this is sort of a compromise that we can allow the federal government to continue financing uh, college tuition for students. Um, but they're, the students themselves are going to have to cover part of that cost. Uh, so uh, just like if you go buy a house or a car, typically the lender will require you to make a, a down payment of some sort. It might be a really small percentage. It might be a, a bigger percentage. Uh, but a lot of loans do require that you put something, some sort of cash down. And student loans at this point do not. You can get, uh, there are a lot of uh, federal student loan programs out there that have different requirements, but none of them require that you pay uh, any of your own money down uh, on your college expenses. So you can go to school, you get your scholarships, your your grants, uh, parents pay for part of it, whatever it is, uh, and the federal government will cover the rest. Under my proposal, um, the students themselves or their families would have to put some cash down. They'd have to have some skin in the game in order to, to pay for their college tuition. I don't have a particular percentage in mind. In my piece, I think I, I talked about a 20% uh, down payment. Um, so this, depending on where a student goes to school, that might cost them a few hundred dollars. It might cost them a few thousand dollars. Uh, but the point is that if you're going to get these really low interest, generous federal student loans subsidized by the taxpayers, uh, you ought to have put at least a little bit of your own money down uh, when you go to when you go to college. This piece is in Waco Tribune here. We're going to link to it. read through the whole thing. Read it for yourself. Make up your own mind. Let me throw you some of the pushback. The immediate pushback on this is going to be like, well, the whole idea of student loans is for people that can't afford college in the first place. So obviously they, they probably aren't going to have the money for down payments. This is becoming a gatekeeping thing. This is going to become a class thing. This will become, you know, disparate people groups are going to get filtered out. There's no way that that accusation doesn't have some merit to it. So what's your answer to that? Well, my answer to that is the federal government already provides pretty generous financial assistance to people that come from lower income families uh, in the form of Pell Grants. Um, for everybody else, um, I think I, I, well, we need to be honest about the implications of this. And it is true that people that come from uh, lesser means probably won't be able to afford uh, the same well, the same expense as they were before. But that doesn't mean that they won't be able to go to college at all. 
I think uh, that requiring a down payment for student loans uh, will encourage people to think more about the prices that they're paying. So sure, you might have somebody that comes from a family that's a little bit less well off there. Maybe they're not going to be able to go to that private university three states over uh, anymore because they just can't afford what the down payment would be on that. Um, but they would still be able to go to a college uh, somewhere closer to home, probably a public university. So we're certainly not saying that uh, someone won't be able to uh, go to college at all. But the, the you know the other issue is that uh, we're talking about people that are going to college if to get to uh, to get accepted into a university to begin with, especially one that's really expensive. Probably going to have a pretty good GPA. Probably going to have pretty good ACT, SAT scores. Uh, so in that case, those students are are going to qualify for uh, for scholarships. Um, so you're talking about if, if we have a hypothetical student that comes from a family that doesn't make a lot of money, maybe they make just enough to, uh, to not qualify for a Pell Grant, but they don't make enough for, for their children to, to go to college for their, for the, uh, the family to, to pay for the college. Um, uh, so those are people that you might see falling through the cracks. Um, the ones that don't qualify for Pell Grants, but their parents don't make enough money to, to pay out of pocket for all of their college expenses. Uh, uh, well, I think that we've uh, we've overestimated how difficult it is for people to pay for college expenses out of pocket. So yes, we've seen tuition rise much faster than the general rate of inflation, uh, but it's certainly not out of reach for a lot of students to pay for, for college out of pocket. Um, if, if they're working. So even part-time work or full-time work, um, it's not impossible for them to work and go to school at the same time. Um, so we've seen college, we've seen college tuition rise over the past few decades, um, but it's not, uh, it's not risen so fast that it's completely impossible for people to work and pay for their, their schooling out of pocket. Uh, so I, you know, I, we, I talked earlier in the program about how I I went to college. I paid for a lot of it uh, out of pocket. I took one loan out my last semester. Uh, I worked part time, uh, two part time jobs that sometimes added up to full time hours. Uh, so I was I was able to pay for for my schooling out of pocket. And I went to a uh, a college that you know their uh, their tuition was pretty reasonably priced, um, but uh, I think I speaking from my own experience, it's not that difficult actually to to go to school and work at the same time and, and pay for everything. Yeah, Tyler, uh, jo Tyler Curtis joining us. Of course, the rebuttal to that is going to be, well, sure, it was easy for you. It's not easy for everybody. If we're going to say this is a predatory system, why should we have a solution that has the burden on the victims of that system and the people having to pay into it. Why aren't we having a solution that is on the part of the system that's the problem, which is the university system and the financial folks that are funneling all this money? What do you say to that criticism? Well, I mean, I, I understand where that criticism is coming from, so I get the perspective. But uh, the only way, uh, well, I would say that forgiving the student loans, even if you think that some of them were predatory, uh, if we were pressuring students to take out loans that they were not going to be able to uh, pay or loans that they really didn't want, but they consented to anyway. The only way to, uh, to fix that uh, is, to, is to forgive that debt like the president did. 
but it's really not fixing the problem at all uh, because uh, you're not really forgiving the debt. You are getting rid of the debt, but you're requiring that you're requiring taxpayers to uh, to pay for it. Uh, so you're really you're shifting the burden from from those that took out those loans uh, to people that didn't. So if there's anything predatory going on, it's the federal government saying, uh, hey, you guys that didn't take out any loans or, or you people that took uh, took out loans and paid them back. Now we're going to tax you even more to pay for people uh, to pay off the student loans for people that uh, that consented to them and, and now no longer uh, want to pay them. So yeah. I would say that that the taxation is really uh, the taxation to pay uh, to cancel student loan debt is more predatory than than the student loans uh, than the student loans are themselves. Tyler Curtis joining us. Um, you touch on it in the piece, but I think this is another one of those, you know, fair credit. Look, when you do a solutions piece, you got to have answers for the solutions, right? So we're going to throw a couple of these at you. Um, you. You talk about it. This becomes a supply and demand kind of thing. You're changing the demand. Well, the fairness folks are going to start screaming, well, it's not fair for people to not get the chance to get this higher education, which gets you into a different job bracket, which gets you and on and on and on. How do you answer the fairness argument? Because there's no version of doing something with a down payment that doesn't turn into a gatekeeping exercise, either monetarily or otherwise. So how do you deal with the fairness argument, which again is specious and it can be whatever anybody wants to be to be fair. That's what's going to get thrown at it is this isn't going to be fair. Well, what's really not fair is trying to make college a uh, an entitlement. So if you start, if your perspective is that everybody should have the opportunity regardless of their, uh, regardless of their grades that they got, uh, regardless of their career opportunities that they'll have after college, um, if everybody should have the opportunity to go to college and the federal government should give them that opportunity, uh, then, uh, then it's really become an entitlement. Um, and if it's an if it's an entitlement provided by the federal government, that means that it's really provided by the taxpayers. Um, so I would say that yes, it, it would be it's kind of a catch twenty two. It might be unfair for certain students not to be not to be afforded the opportunity to go to college because they're required to pay for some of it uh, up front. They may not be able to afford it. Um, but it would also be unfair to tax people who were never given the opportunity to go to college uh, because they, they they didn't get good enough grades to get in uh, or because they just didn't want to. Maybe they didn't feel like it was the best thing for them. Maybe they wanted to go right to the workplace. Maybe they went to uh, a trade school, learned a skill. They never took out student loans in the first place. Uh, I think it would be unfair to them to say that uh, everybody that goes to college uh, needs to have it 100% paid for by the federal government. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us, talking student loan debt. 
you ended your piece talking about, and we're debating this back and forth and giving you some of the pushback because again, you know, again, we understand this is a complex issue. That's not going to be a single thing fixed. There's going to have to be multiple things to happen here. This is one idea that you have for part of it. You ended your piece saying, if we're serious about reducing tuition costs and student loan debt, we need to think outside the box. Well, we know why nobody's thinking outside the box because all the money's inside the box. Yeah. And the whole system is built to make money in the funnel kids because funneling kids makes more money. Your proposal aside, though, big picture wise, we keep talking about, well, maybe Big Ed's a bubble that's going to eventually pop. I don't know if that's going to happen or not because there's so much invested in it. We talk about technology changing things, people being able to do different ways of going to higher education. What do you think is going to get people outside of that box? Because it, one way or the other, what we're doing now doesn't seem to be sustainable. So what's going to be the catalyst, do you think? Well, I think um, I think actually, um, ironically, the president's uh, student loan forgiveness plan uh, is the catalyst to spur conversation about why there is so much more student debt now than there used to be. Um, uh, but, you know, like you said, the problem is that nobody's really talking about the root causes. Um, a lot of the solutions on the table are to help people that already have student loan debt. Um, so you see a lot of proposals like uh, allowing people to discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy court. And I think that's a fine idea, but it doesn't really address uh, why it is that there's that people have more student loan debt than they did in the past. Uh, so it's going to help people, you know, allowing them to discharge it in bankruptcy court will help them, people that are financially struggling after they've already taken out debt. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't prevent students from taking out loans in the future. Um, the president also proposed uh, lowering the minimum payment requirement on the income driven uh, repayment program. Again, that helps people that are struggling to make their payments now, but it doesn't prevent students from taking out more more loans in the future. Um, Senator Marco Rubio and a couple of other uh, Democratic senators uh, have a proposal to eliminate interest rates on uh, federal student loans. Uh, so again, that's going to help people. That would help people uh, make their payments and would get help get, help them to uh, get their loans paid off. But it doesn't help them not go into debt in the first place. Uh, so I, I think uh, requiring students to make a down payment uh, on their college tuition. Uh, is one way to uh, to for us to start to see decrease uh, in the astronomical amounts of student loan debt that students have uh, accrued over the past few years, uh, and hopefully it helps future students uh, from falling into that same debt spiral that so many people find themselves in today. Tyler Curtis joining us. Since you wrote the piece, it's been out for a little bit. It's at the Waco Tribune Herald. Again, we're going to link to it. You need to read it yourself. Been out about two weeks now. What's the pushback you get? What's the what's some of the because obviously this is an emotionally charged issue on top of being a trending viral one. And of course, the president's got gasoline on it. Now we're going to have some court cases about what the president passed. What's some of the pushback and feedback you've been getting since you wrote the piece? Yeah, I get uh, two two major pieces of pushback. And one is is what we talked about earlier is that it would prevent people from from going to college that otherwise should be given the opportunity to do so. Um, and I think I think that's just um, I mean, that's a valid that's a valid line of criticism. Uh, but the way I answer at answer that is just to say, you know, if we look at the affordability of college, um, we can see that it's really not out of reach 
for people to pay for at least part of it themselves if they're working. Um, but the bad thing is that so many college students today aren't working. If you look at look at rates, uh, employment rates amongst college students over the past couple of decades, uh, we're seeing a pretty uh, stable downward trend. Um, but uh, if they, if the students were working, uh, it's really uh, it's it would certainly be difficult, especially if uh, if the tuition that you're paying is really high. Uh, but it's not out of reach. Uh, if you look at college tuition in 1991, um, it was about three to four thousand dollars for an in-state public university. The uh, the minimum federal minimum wage was about three dollars and fifty cents an hour. So it would take you about twelve hundred hours to pay for a full year uh, of of your college if you're paying a hundred percent of it out of pocket. Uh, if you um, if you're going to college today, it would probably cost you about $10,000 for an in-state public university. Um, so at, at today's federal student uh, or federal minimum wage is about $7.25 an hour. Uh, most states pay well above that. Uh, but let's just say you're working at the federal minimum wage. Uh, it would take you about 1,400 hours, a little bit over 1,400 hours to pay for, for $10,000 of, of tuition at that. Uh, at that rate. Um, so it's it's not that much more expensive. And, and certainly uh, if you work and live in a state that pays a higher minimum wage, such as Missouri, I think it's about $11.25 an hour, $11.50 an hour in Missouri, uh, it would actually be more affordable if you're working at a minimum wage job uh, to pay for college today than it was in the 1990s. Um, so that's how I, I would address that criticism. Uh, the other other criticism is that um, uh, that uh, like you said earlier, some people would fall through the cracks. They they don't their families make too much money for them to qualify for federal uh, grant money, but they don't make enough money to pay for their their students or for pay for their kids to go to college. Uh, but uh, you know that's part of uh, yeah, that's part of. Uh, part of the plan's benefit too is that if fewer people go to college, it lowers the demand for college. Um, so uh, prices should come down just as a, the simple working of supply and demand. Yeah, Tyler Curtis, read the piece for yourself. Controversial idea, bad mess of a problem. So somebody's got to start doing something out there. So I don't mind people throwing ideas like this because then we can hash them out and discuss it. We ask you hard questions about it. You answered them. Appreciate that. Uh, till we see you on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you, where you got stuff going on. Uh, we will link to this piece and all your other social media, but let folks know where they can keep up with you until we talk to you again, my friend. Well, they can follow me on Twitter at TylerCurtis42 at T-Y-L-E-R-C-U-R-T-I-S 42 on Twitter. Yep. And we'll link to that as well. We'll see him again. Uh, keep probing, though. It's always good to write those things to get people talking. That's how you'll get stuff published. Well done, my friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Tyler Curtis. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As always, love to hear from you. Herdtellshow at gmail.com. You can send us an email, Show on the Twitter. You can DM us and follow us there. Also, my Twitter handle, 4 for the Fire, and those of our guests is always in the lower third graphics. If you're watching on the YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, there'll be links for you to follow both the writing of the folks we have on and us and our social media. This only works because you listen, and we so greatly appreciate you. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We can't wait to see you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.